Welcome to the first ever bonus episode of Corn Syrup, a horror podcast. Mike, you ready to talk about a childhood favorite of ours? Of course, man. It's Shark Week. Let's get to it. Yeah, happy Shark Week, guys. We are talking about Deep Blue Sea, a movie Mike and I have seen probably a dozen times. We wanted to say thank you again to our Twitter followers. We did hold a poll to determine which movie we were going to talk about today in honor of Shark Week. We had Deep Blue Sea, Open Water, The Shallows, and 47 Meters Down. And I think it's safe to say that Deep Blue Sea is a favorite amongst horror fans and shark movie enthusiasts because that movie won in a landslide. Oh, yeah. I think it got, what, over 65% of the vote. This movie, when you look at the other three that it was up against, I don't think it's so much a horror movie. Like, this was more like action, like summer blockbuster. The other three were horror movies, I feel like. I agree. In fact, the scariest movie amongst those four to me is Open Water, just because it feels so realistic. Whereas, like you said, this movie is just kind of a fun little ride. It's like part sci-fi, part thriller, part action. But let's get into it. I mean, like I said, you and I have seen this movie a million times, but I just revisited it for the first time somewhat recently in preparation for this podcast, even though I had seen it probably 10, 12 times as a kid. When's the last time you saw this movie? Prior to this week, it had to to have at least been 10 years. Um, I remember when this came out on DVD, like this was the movie to own. Um, I think it came out on VHS and DVD, and everyone said, this is a movie. If you have a DVD player, you have to get this movie because of the CGI and the special effects. And, you know, watching it 20 years ago, you know, you can see that this was the movie to own if you had a big screen and a DVD player. If it held up so much, I don't know. That's kind of what we'll talk about if this movie still kind of holds up, but uh, I think it has. I think overall it has, and you know what's really cool about it now? There's obviously some CGI, like you said, but they they stayed pretty true to their craft in the sense that a lot of the sharks are animatronics right. or you know practical effects, however you want to put it. So for the most part, it does hold up well. Where it doesn't hold up, some of the CGI, understandably so, looks a little hokey looking back on it. Like before the podcast started, we were talking about how a lot of the times where the sharks eat the people and they rip the bodies in half sometimes that looks a little clearly you know not a human leg floating i mean this was made in uh, 1999 that's like the peak of like the corny cgi when everyone just wanted to get their hands on it and you weren't really sure how it was going to turn out the one that stands out to me the most is michael rapaport's death really none of the deaths in this movie are bad it's just the clear cgi of michael rapaport's death was a little hokey but i mean let's get into what works for us so this movie was directed by rennie harlan who we've we actually already spoke about a couple weeks ago he directed dream master and obviously if, if you're a fan of the podcast you know that we're ranking all 51 movies of the six major slasher franchises so we touched upon dream master and therefore we touched upon rennie harlan now this was was a strange time in Rennie Harlan's career. His last commercial success was Cliffhanger, which was released in 1993, and he had released a few movies that were not critically panned, but they just weren't commercially successful in between Cliffhanger and Deep Blue Sea. So I think in a lot of ways, Rennie Harlan really needed a bounce back with this movie, and from a financial standpoint, he succeeded. Oh, yeah, of course. And they gave him a huge budget for this movie, $60 million. 
And as we said, you know, this was a summer blockbuster, so uh, this was expected to make a lot of money at the box office, and um, it somewhat did, making $73 million at the U.S. box office, 164 in the worldwide box office, so they did pretty well with that. When you look at, like, shark movies in, like, the 90s, like, there weren't really any major shark movies, you know? Like, I feel like most of them were either, like, straight to VHS. Uh, the real last one was, um, prior to this movie, was Jaws the Revenge in 1987, and you had the whole Jaws franchise. But, there, you know, but there were no really major blockbuster movies. Now, of course, there's Jaws. That was 1975, and that's an all-time classic. But it kind of seemed like that, like, the shark genre was dead yeah. at that point. Yeah, and they brought it back in a big way, and like you said, they didn't really go the traditional horror route, and it's funny, so this movie was actually up against two bona fide horror movies at the box office at the time. This was actually competing with M. Night Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense, and then The Blair Witch Project, which obviously made on a shoestring budget, just took off at the time. So it was competing with those two movies in theaters. The really interesting thing about Rennie Harlan direction with this film he wanted to make the movie in a way where the viewers wouldn't have an understanding as to which characters were going to live and which ones were going to die and he based that off of the movie alien whoever's seen alien it's never even clear that ripley is a final girl so he 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 based the characters of deep blue sea in a similar fashion and i think he largely succeeded with that You definitely get that when you're um, introduced to everybody. Um, they all kind of have the same amount of screen time. They all have like their different type of characteristics that you like um, about the person or you don't like about the character. Samuel L. Jackson is the third billing uh, actor in this movie. He's not even, he's the biggest name without doubt, but he's the third billing. So that kind of tells you something. Um, Saffron Burroughs is the first billing actor in this movie. I've never heard of her. Uh, I don't think she's really been in much since even looking her up yeah i don't know anything about her it's funny yeah i mean i looked her up on wikipedia so four people in this movie went on to be involved with marvel productions obviously samuel l jackson was nick fury thomas jane was the punisher right in the 2004 movie that's right saffron burrows was on agents of shield it's a tv show i'm I'm not really familiar with it stellan skarsgård was in a marvel production as well you mentioned Samuel L. Jackson. Funny tidbit here. He was actually offered the part of LL Cool J's role. Oh, really? But he turned it Preacher. down. Yeah, his people, I don't I don't know why, but his people didn't want him to be a chef. <laughs> don't, don't ask me why. So Rennie Harlan actually created this new character for Samuel L. Jackson because he wanted him in the movie that badly. And then thankfully... In turn, we got LL Cool J in the preacher role, who's probably my favorite character in the movie. Yeah, and he's fresh off a uh, Halloween H2O in this movie. Man, he was hot in the late 90s. He huh? was, man. And he sings the uh, theme song to this movie, too. Yeah. Well, you know what's cool? The characters seem to forget about Preacher in this movie. He's, like, by himself the he's whole by- movie, it seems like. He almost has his and own Even little... when he's with the characters, he's, like, by himself still. And he almost has his own little storyline where he's in the kitchen and the shark chases him into the Mm -hmm. oven. He's just by himself a lot in this movie. And it's like the other characters don't even mention him. Right. (laughs) When everything goes down. Yeah, he's really good in this with his parrot. Apparently they used two different parrots for this movie too. They didn't have... They didn't have the budget to get one really good talking parrot, so right. that, 
so they spend money on two lesser talking. I don't know ones. if like the writers really focus in on his character much because his name's Preacher and his bird's name is Bird. Good point. Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of brainstorming there, I don't think. I don't think so either. Let's get into the opening scene. The opening scene actually, for some reason, I think I've just been watching too many slasher movies, but for some reason it reminded me of Jason Takes Manhattan, where it opens up with the people on the boat. Yeah, like the dumb teenagers on the boat drinking. This opening scene is a little bit better written, and it's definitely much more suspenseful. I kind of forgot about this scene. I don't really see a point to it, though. That's kind of what I got from watching it. It's like I think it's just to prove that Thomas Tom, Jane's character is a badass. That's exactly, yeah, that's what I got out of it. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't really serve a big purpose other than that, but I do like it because honestly, if you're watching that movie, you're probably convinced that those people are going to die. And they don't, so like you're kind of thinking like, okay, this probably won't be a high death count in this movie. Yeah, that, that whole opening scene is just to show that Thomas Jane will probably be like the leading guy in this movie. Yeah. And that he's a badass. It kind of sets the premise. It's revealed that Saffron Burrow's character... She's basically trying to find a cure for Alzheimer's. And she obviously has a dog in the fight, you know, uh, when she reveals that her father uh, suffers from Alzheimer's. Yeah, and that's the thing about this movie. So she's doing it for a noble cause, although some of the methods that she takes are a little bit dangerous and misguided. When this movie was tested, the test audience actually didn't like the fact that in the original movie, she lived. Right. And they disapproved of that, which... I, I guess I can understand, that, you know, why they see her as the villain a little bit. But you also have to be able to sympathize with there was reasoning behind right. her methods. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, sad for her to explain how uh, her mother had passed away and her father, you know, had to relive that every day when she would tell him. But I can see also with her dying why it makes sense because, uh, you know, this was the monster that she created and it does kind of come full circle when she sacrifices herself at the end. I don't know if she sacrifices herself on, on purpose because she was trying to get out of the water, you know, and the ladder breaks. Yeah, but I don't know if she dies on purpose, but there was that scene where with the second shark, she basically destroys her work when she kills that second shark right. with the electrocution. Mm -hmm. So she maybe didn't sacrifice herself toward the end there, but she did sacrifice her work at she one point. She meant a lot to her, right? Yeah, so it was a noble cause. I mean, I never really, I don't really agree with the test audiences there. I think she could have lived, and I, I would have understood that even though some of the paths that she took got the characters in this predicament, but she obviously had her reasonings, and they were good reasonings. Right, with her being like the lead billing actor, uh, I was not expecting her to die. My, my two favorite moments of the movie. Let's start with Stellan Skarsgård's death. There's that epic moment where Thomas Jane is coming up through the water with the shark and that epic blockbuster music right. begins to play and they're really telling you that hey, this isn't this isn't your grandfather's shark movie. Like right. th like you said at the beginning, this is really a blockbuster summer popcorn movie. This is a shark on steroids. Right. We're finally seeing it. And up then you close and personal. And then they think they're in the clear with the shark, and then it bites off Stellan Skarsgård's arm. Those are practical effects that hold up great, by the way. It that does. scene looks great. That um, that uh, close-up shot of his arm is great. It sends me chills watching that blood squirt onto like the white floor. But then, so as they are helicoptering Stellan Skarsgård's character out of the underground facility, he falls into the water, and then there's the scene where they're still underground in the facility, and they see the shark coming right. with Stellan Skarsgård 
strapped into a stretcher in the shark's mouth. Um, he, he just gets his shit like beat out of him. That's one of the worst deaths I've ever seen, man. Yeah, like it's grueling to watch. It, it is silly. Now, of course, it kind of shows how smart these sharks are. But physically, I'm not sure how that could actually happen. I mean, you could shoot a gun at a window, but if you're underwater, it's not going to crack. But a stretcher getting thrown into and it breaks. and It's silly, and I can tell you, for a kid, it was scary because uh, I used to terrify me. It was so intense as a kid, you know. But watching it now, that's kind of one of one of the scenes that didn't really hold up for me because I'm kind of just thinking of, like, the science of it the whole time. I was like, this doesn't make any sense, but it's still really cool. Yeah, it's funny. You were thinking about the science. I was thinking about how freaking terrible that would be. Like, it's bad right. enough to be submerged underwater. With your arm bitten off. Yeah, strapped. You can't breathe. You can't move because you're right. strapped into a stretcher. Let's be honest. The best moment in this entire movie is when Samuel L. Jackson is giving his mo- Looking back on it, the monologue is so weird. He's talking about how he survived an avalanche right. where there was only one mention in the film about that. Right. Prior to that monologue, it was when uh, Saffron Barrow's character was having a birthday party, and he said something about it to LL Cool J. Yeah. So in my head, I was like, this monologue is so stupid. It, it has has nothing to do with the movie. Right. But then, obviously, that's just used to set up Samuel L. Jackson's death, which is just awesome. It, it is a great death. You could go back to like the CGI and whether it looks good or not, but... The shock value of his death is awesome. And, um, you know, he's kind of stepping up as the leader because at that point in the movie, no one really was stepping up. They all were arguing. Thomas Jane's character may know the most about the sharks, but he's not really a leader. He's kind of just a quiet one. Mm-hmm. But Samuel's finally stepping up. He's giving his pep talk, and boom, shark comes out of nowhere. And I think the other shark joins, and they just go ape shit on Samuel's body. And it's actually really cool. <laughs> It's something that never gets old, even though you know it's coming. Right. One of the things that I think is unique about the movie and holds up very well is the actual facility, how there's different layers to it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It always just it always just felt so real to me, along with the characters feeling pretty real for the most part. But if you think about it, most shark movies, they usually take place if somebody is abandoned on the sea. Or in the case of Jaws, it's like, you know, there's a killer shark. Don't go in the water. Right. This is really the only shark movie that I've ever seen. There may be some others, but this is the only one that I've ever seen where there's like a pretty unique underwater facility. Right, and, and there's all still like a claustrophobic feel to it. You can't escape, and your only way of escaping is, what, they're 60 feet underwater, I believe, so like getting out is going to be a pain in the ass. Well, you, yeah, you, you just made a great segue for me, because speaking of tight spaces, the scene near the end where the only people left are... Thomas Jane, Saffron Barrows, and LL Cool J, and the water is filling up, and Thomas Jane is like, hey, are you guys ready? 60 feet to the top. Right. And they sell it pretty well. You can see the fear on their face, but it's like, hey, this is life or death. Yeah. We got to do this 60 feet to the top. I don't know if you're like me, but every time I watch a movie that involves someone holding their, their breath, I always try and hold my breath with them. Yeah. And, you know, in some cases, like, you'll be watching a movie, and it's like, all right, it's been, like, three minutes. There's no way that could possibly happen. Uh, here, it actually, I think it's only about a minute or so, so it's pretty realistic, too. So a couple more tidbits about this movie. The screenwriter, he's from Australia. His name is Duncan Kennedy. He actually wrote this movie after witnessing a shark attack. He saw a man get attacked by a shark, and then the man 
actually washed up on shore. And then Duncan Kennedy started having nightmares because he said there was really not a whole lot left of the guy's body. And so he started having these nightmares, and he ended up writing this script. At the time Duncan Kennedy wrote this script, it was like five or six years prior to the movie actually began filming. So it sat there for a while. And another funny thing about this movie, this was actually the first movie that Stephen King saw after he was nearly killed by that van. His first trip out of the house after that was to the movies to see this movie. And he said he enjoyed the hell out of it, right? Yeah. Now, would you say uh, that this is a movie that's so bad it's good? Is it just bad, or do you think it's an actually good movie? That's a good question, because when we were debating on what shark movies to cover in honor of Shark Week, we originally had the idea, it was like, oh, do we do a good one or do we do a bad one right, to make it like more a funny? Sharknado or something, like right. one of those. I really think this is a good B-movie. Right. I think this is a movie, you know, back in 99, you go to the theater, it's a popcorn movie. Exactly. It's nothing groundbreaking, obviously, but I'll tell you what, there are people that think this is the second best shark movie of all time. Behind Jaws? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And you could see it. I mean, you look at shark movies, and they're either campy or scary. Like, this kind of is one of the few blockbuster shark movies, you know, because you look at the other movies that we that we were about to do. I think Open Water was made on, like, a $500,000 budget. Yeah. The Shallows and 47, and 47 Meters Down were not much more this i probably would put this as the second best shark movie of all time how about you you know looking looking back on what has happened to shark movies and how that subgenre of horror has evolved sharknado has really influenced a lot of those dumb silly shark movies Mm -hmm. and so you know i can look back on a movie like this and really appreciate it right especially for when it came out I think it's a movie that's uh, held up really well over 21 years that it's been out. The uh, CGI, as we brought up, isn't the best at times, but it doesn't mean that the special effects aren't really good. I think the cast of this movie is really good. uh, Michael Rappaport, Samuel L., Thomas Jane. Do you want to give this movie a letter grade? To me, this is the epitome of a B movie. Right. When I was nine, this movie would have gotten an A+. (laughs) Uh, Right now, after watching it, I'll go B minus. Fair enough. That is going to be it for our first ever bonus episode. We're going to have more probably not until October. We're actually going to go weekly in October. Until then, next Wednesday, August the 19th, we have part four of our five-part series. For those who haven't been following along, we're ranking all 51 movies of the Halloween, Friday the 13th, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream, and Child's Play movies. Part 1, 2, and 3 are out. Make sure you catch up before next Wednesday. You can catch Deep Blue Sea on HBO Max and Prime Video. Enjoy Shark Week, and we will talk to you guys on the 19th.